Thank you for joining us on the latest episode of Wild and Free, about a born podcast. We have one quick note before this episode. We wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded prior to the murder of George Floyd um, at the hands of the Minneapolis police. That is why that is not a topic of conversation on this latest episode. We here at Wild and Free About a Born podcast stand firmly with the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as with the protests here in Las Vegas and across the country. started. Uh, welcome to Wild and Free, a Bottle Board podcast. This is Jacob, as always, with my co-wrangler, Allison. Allison, how are you? I'm good, Jacob. How are you? You know what? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. This is my first episode at 40. So, we can- Oh, yes. Congratulations, bud. How's it feel? Thank you. Um, my knees aren't aching as much as I was told they were going to when I turned 40. So, but they've been aching for a while. So, I guess it's, it's probably okay. All right. So, win, win. It's something does like your that. Mug, does your mug say "Make America 1980 again"? It says "Making America Great Since 1980," which, oh, which my which my brother and sister in law got me um, as a nice little gag gift. So I feel oh, I felt like I should probably drink it's it. It's very and... appropriate for our guest. Yes. Oh, super appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, speaking of which, our our special guest today is Cole Miller. Um, so I uh, worked with Cole for a while, um, but uh, the way that I would like to introduce him, because he's just kind of an enigma. So you've got uh, Cole's a jack of all trades, brewer, distiller, podcast host, stats guru, um, and general, just if you want to talk about anything, Cole's your guy. Um, he's also probably the closest I've met to Matthew McConaughey. So Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa! What an introduction! I don't know if I, uh, I don't know if I deserve all that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, welcome, Cole. How are you doing today? Oh man, I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Uh, thank you all for finally having on, having me on. Uh, it's you know, it it took an actual pandemic to get invited on the show. Uh, so I won't read into that too much. But you know, uh, what I always say is, if if when you get called up to the big leagues, you better be ready. And uh, I think I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Excellent. Well, this is also as close to sports as any of us are getting now. So we're putting you in. Oh, yeah, I've got bets on this. So we're good. (laughs) You know, now that you say the McConaughey thing, I can kind of see it. And maybe this is like your Dallas Buyers Club moment, Cole. Oh, wow. That's that's a lot. Yeah, I was thinking more of interstellar. But yeah, that'll work. You will be nominated for an Oscar at one point. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. All right. Now the pressure is definitely on at this point. No, yeah. So it must be, so when Allison receives her, we got, so Cole will be doing the introduction. Is that how this works? I don't. That would be nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think at that point, uh-huh. I, I, I probably will be. Uh, yeah. yeah. Cause, okay. Because I, I will just be at home and be like, oh, I know those two. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, fantastic. Uh, so, 
uh, we today, um, in amongst the many things we could have you talk about today, Cole, where we specifically wanted you to come on and talk about uh, some of the economic uh, potential economic consequences, housing market, and kind of what the outlook looks like right now um, from where we are at in the p- pandemic. And so, um, you know, we're here kind of near the end of May. Um, most places are starting to open up with a few. A few exceptions, California, New York, Michigan, um, who have yet to kind of like fully embrace the opening here in Nevada. Uh, we're looking like the casinos will probably open June 3rd or 4th. I think I got an email from oh, the wow. El Cortez that they're starting to book reservations for the 4th. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we're, we're really we're really looking looking like uh you know, things are, things are starting. So my first question to you would be, um, you know, when we, when we think about the economy, um, a lot of times it's, we talk about the, the, the stock market. So the stock market at least recently has been doing pretty well, despite so many people yeah. being out of work. Um, what do you kind of see as, you know, the, the impact both of, of that, of the stock market doing well, but people still being out of work? Um, and how do you think the reopening will impact that? Yeah, so the, the and probably just about everybody has heard this over the past three weeks, but the stock market is not exactly the economy. Um, historically speaking, the two have been pretty related, uh, especially like prior to the 2000s. But now, because our economy is so much uh, more, is so much more sophisticated than it has been in the past, uh, and therefore even more uh, income inequality has affected just a little bit more um, than a world the stock market, especially than the economy itself. So to answer your question, there's a few things that I think that are uh, prudent in speaking towards. Uh, first being that, you know, the before the pandemic, uh, the, the stock market was on one of the best, you know, kind of bull markets that we've, you know, seen historically speaking. But there were still the economy as a whole. There were a lot of people struggling. Um, there, you know, I've, there have been studies that were showing that forty percent couldn't handle a four hundred dollar emergency expense. Right. So it's hard to say that you know it, it's hard to say that the economy is doing good when you know almost half of the country can't can't you know buy a new car if they need to. That's uh, you know not necessarily good. Plus, we had more Americans working two plus jobs, uh, and that was more than at any other time in the history of this country. So there were people doing well, the stock market was doing well because the people that are investing in the stock market were doing well and they are still because of the demographics of the uh, pandemic itself. It's not affecting the people. uh, I mean, it is affecting everyone obviously, but it's not affecting these groups particularly bad in comparison to others. Um, Like for instance, you've, both probably know this, but who uh, is is being affected by health purposes by the uh, COVID nineteen the most? Right, African Americans, low in- yeah. low income Native Americans, people of yeah. color in general, um, and so the people that are losing their jobs the most. You know what demographic that is? Probably the same. It is, but it's also women. Women are losing their jobs at a much higher rate uh, as opposed to the financial crisis in in, in 2000. In the 2000s, um, it was mostly men that were losing their jobs, and that's why we saw a stock market. Now, the reason that I'm bringing that uh, up is that 
even today still, uh, even though it's gotten a little bit better, the people that invest in the stock market at a high rate tend to be white men. Uh, and they aren't necessarily, I mean, obviously there are people being that are having a hard time, but they are doing better as a whole. Um, and, and that can be for a lot of different reasons. Right. And, and I, Oh, go for it. Yeah, I think that there also it's that, you know, we sometimes think of the stock market as being a snapshot in time. And it can be uh, whether it's, you know, we have a president tweeting that we might go to war with Iran that can change the markets. Right. Or we can have uh, Elon Musk tweeting that the stocks are too value too high or that they're not value high enough. Those can cause reactions and they do tend to cause reactions. Uh, but it's not always a snapshot in time. People aren't buying because things are doing well. They're buying because they think in the future things could be doing well. Right. Uh, and with all of the history, uh, with all the historical stories that we have of people, you know, they'll tell you that you don't get rich buying into the market when it's high. You know, we hear of Bitcoin where you buy it at eight cents and then it's worth two thousand dollars. Or right. you know, that's not a perfect example. But those types of things are. You know, people are buying because they think that in the future uh, things will be better and they can afford to do it because they, you know, the level of inequality, uh, especially on the income front is very, very high. So the people that have money and that have been investing are still able to do it and they still are. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they, and just, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. I mean, I, I, you know, I think the general statistic that I uh, see frequently is that only about 50% of Americans oh. have money in the stock market. And then right. I mean, I'm definitely one of the 50 that do, but it's in a retirement. I don't, I don't actively, I don't manage that. So it's, you know, it's definitely, so there's probably even a, such a, a, a slimmer margin. I don't know what that is of people who are actually like have individual, you know, you know, or have, have these portfolios that are beyond retirement accounts. Because um, probably right. most and of us are, that do have retirement accounts in the stock market. Exactly. So 50% yeah. is, is an extraordinarily high number right. uh, in comparison because most people that have stocks aren't buying them and trading them regularly. It is their 401ks or their IRAs or what have you, uh, all their different ways of investing through their job. So it's such a slim margin and, you know, it, we're, we're, we've just got all of that type of thing. Well, and I think just to kind of um, expand a little bit about the wealth disparities that exist in this country that have been increasing since the 1980s and that we've seen um, sure. continuously the 1%, right, more of the wealth in this country be concentrated by that 1%. You know, right. why that gap, widening gap in the U.S. has been occurring, it's because of a slew of policy changes that started around the Reagan era, right, lower mm -hmm. tax wealthy, weaker labor protections, lax antitrust enforcement, elevated education and healthcare costs, and a stagnant min minimum wage, right? That um, at the end of the day is a system, a rigged system that's propped up the rich to borrow from Elizabeth Warren, that's propped up the rich, up the rich and kicks dirt on everybody else, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing, like they're, uh, you know, the reason that the, the numbers are so skewed towards white men investing is because of all of this type of this thing you're talking about, the systemic inequality. Um, and, and so you're, you're, you're absolutely right in that the people that are investing aren't necessarily suffering. Um, and I think we're actually getting even more people that 
you know, those of us who are lucky enough to have kept their jobs, you know, maybe they're seeing this as an opportunity to invest. Because again, those stories of people that are, uh, you know, you buy at $10 a share, it ends up 10 years from now at $200 a share and you get rich. People love those types of stories. And I think that, you know, if you're lucky enough to keep your job, you may think I can spend $1,000 or $2,000 on stock right. um, and the people that are keeping their jobs are, are in that same demographic. So it's, it's actually exacerbating the, the, the issue. Correct, correct. Because right. not to go down a whole rabbit hole, right, about trickle down <laughs> economics, but um, sure. really the government, you know, when they offer these type of tax incentives or stimulus packages, the idea is that it's going to trickle down to their employees, right? Um, but usually uh, the idea is that they'll reinvest in their businesses. But more often than that, they end up hiring, the businesses end up hiring lobbyists, making camp campaign donations, and pursuing acquisitions that eliminate competitors. So uh, there's no way that middle America, Main Street America sees any of that money at all. Right. No, I mean, and, and, and just it, we have tons of data that shows that whenever there is more money in the hands of corporations, they don't necessarily hire more employees. A lot of cases, they buy more stock. Uh, in their own company to make themselves more powerful, uh, which when you get into situations like this is e e even more concerning. Mm -hmm. right. Well, so Cole, we're witnessing millions of Americans right now, they're struggling to pay for their basic necessities. Um, sure. But the biggest financial stress they're facing is possible eviction, right? Making sure they have a roof over their house, over their heads today and in the coming months, right? We're talking right. about the 12 to 18 months. I'm wondering, how will the pandemic impact housing prices? And a follow-up up to, um, to that is if people are unable to pay their mortgages, potentially will we see more people start to move to apartments and will this drive rents, the price of rents go up? 100 million Americans live in rental units. I'm wondering sure. what our local Las Vegas rental market will look like. Yeah, so it's it's actually so we're we're living through a time where there's no historical data that we can look at to give us a good example of how things will impact in the housing market or in unemployment in general. Um, so we're we know right now that there are millions and millions of people not working. We're at rates that are even higher than the Great Depression in some instances. People believe, and so. The thing is, a lot of people uh, that are that have been interviewed about losing their jobs think that they're going to get their job back. And if that is the case, that can change completely the projections of what we see right now. I kind of, you know, and I'm not an, an uh, expert uh, necessarily in, in the housing market, uh, but I do think that it, it's a lot more bleak than we're getting, uh, than we are seeing all in all. Um, I think that the the biggest concern for me is that, like you said, there are hundreds of, there's 100 million people plus that have rent, right? Right now, people have surprisingly been paying their rents at levels that we are, you know, uh, it, which is a little bit surprising. Obviously, there were a lot more people not paying their rent in April, but March was actually better uh, in 2020 than it was in 2019. So people were making their rent. Um, and so it is a, it's a bit of an interest uh, of mine, particularly what is going to happen uh, moving forward. I think a lot of that can be attributed to people being furloughed and not necessarily fully laid off. Because right. if you think you're going to get your job back, maybe uh, you will pay your rent first, right? right. Because you're like, oh, I got to do, if I keep my roof over my head, 
you know, all I got to do is stay above water for a little bit and I can put food on the credit card. We can pay it off. Uh, you know, those are the types of things that people are thinking. So when and if, uh, and I think when is the better way to put it, people are fully laid off. I think that those numbers are going to skyrocket even higher on rent payments. Mm -hmm. And that has a very bad snowball effect because if the rents are being paid, the mortgages aren't being paid. Um, and if the mortgages aren't being paid, we're now in another kind of housing crisis. Uh, and it could very, very quickly get to that just based on the fact that, you know, especially hospitality is you people in the hospitality industry are more likely to live in a rental unit as of right now. Um, and if that's the case and they're not getting their jobs back, or if they do even get their jobs back, but they're making less money, what does that do to a market that's already, it's already kind of teetering on the edge to begin with because of the way we have it set up uh, with big corporations buying up apartments, complexes, a, you know, forcing people out, there's just so much going on that I think that the, the impact of it could be substantially worse than already projected. Uh, I know I'm living a pretty bleak image, but. But it's, but it's, it's, it's also, I mean, it is something to be aware of. And, you know, just recently in Las Vegas, you know, now that we are in the process of reopening, some of the, the hospitality workers who were furloughed have now been laid off. You know, there's Fully. some properties who have just said, you know, we're not reopening. I mean, the, the Palms, which is owned by Station Casinos, you know, they had all of their their employees surrender their um, uniforms and um, because they're oh, wow. not, you know, they're not planning on opening. Um, you know, and there's plenty of other other places where, you know, I think the largest companies, I think Caesars and MGM still haven't officially laid off their workers sure. but once once things open up and we see what the what the landscape looks like and if people don't come back to las vegas then it's only a matter of time before those folks are laid off um mm -hmm. you know and that's and that is i mean that's obviously that's our that's that's the biggest employer in the state is our hospitality industry so yeah you know and and if it's any indication like the last financial crisis is that then people will start to move um to you know, and probably just up and move, you know, I imagine that's going to sure. be that which happened, you know, the last time as well as people just moved out of their places. And so they were then they stopped paying mortgages, they stopped paying rent. Right. Um, and that, you know, that could be a get that could happen again really easily. And I think that's a really good point, because we, we, we already know that a lot of workers are probably not going to be called back to work. Um, you know, because operations at businesses are going to change what right. with e-commerce right. and more people working from home, um, not to mention consumer confidence, right? A lot of people, myself included, don't feel safe going out. Right. So uh, that's a good question, Cole. Like, what is what is your opinion? How is this all going to impact tourism in Las Vegas? And, you know, if we see a decrease in tourism, what does that mean for a city whose livelihood depends so much on tourism and hospitality? So yeah, this is the one that um, it, it's it particularly bleak um, is the out, the projections for Las Vegas that I've kind of been um, tinkering with a little bit. They're very 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 sad. Um, there the reason is the economic structure of casinos in general um, is that you want to get as many people in the doors as you can. And you want to keep them in the door as long as you can. Mm -hmm. So if you get 100,000 people to come into your casino and you have them there for an hour, you make X. If that number changes a little bit, it completely throws off your model. 
And companies like Caesars and MGM are, are notorious for being effective and efficient in projecting these types of things. Um, so if there's anyone that can figure out a model that works best, the, you do have to be confident that they will, uh, because during the last financial crisis, they came out of it a lot better than a lot of people thought. Mm. Um, it was very bleak for a while, but they did come up with new models, new ways of getting people out there. Now, I've seen that there are all sorts of different, you know, uh, strategies of why, how you're going to reopen the casinos, whether that's putting up plexiglass in between, you know, seats at the, at the roulette tables and at the poker tables and things like that. Problem is that takes up space, right? right. You're going to spread all the tables out. You're going to spread the slot machines out. That's going to decrease the amount of people that can come into your casino if there aren't already laws that are saying you can't have 100% capacity. So let's say that you drop that number 50%. You know, let's say that you can have 50% capacity, which would still be uh, a pretty, I would say, not dumb, but a very dangerous proposition to have 50% a very dangerous proposition uh, to have 50% capacity, especially in places that have so many people coming in every single day. But if you were to take that number and you have 50% of the amount of people let in the building, but now you can only have 25% of those people gambling, what does that do to your model? And when that is, you know, it is a city that relies on this thing, you know, they've done great over the past 10, 20 years of trying to diversify out of just gambling. Right. But the mm -hmm. problem is we've seen them turn into what a, a lot of economists are calling the experience economy, right? Like right. they're hosting places for shows, nightclubs, these types of things, which all are susceptible to the same type of problem. So I think that it stems from gambling is it, tends to do historically, at least, um, we're going to see the numbers have to dramatically decrease in order to, you know, and like you were saying, Allison, the consumer comfort is probably going to be the biggest driving factor mm -hmm. on people going to casinos. So mm -hmm. let's say you can have 50,000 people in there. If only 25,000 of them can gamble, that's major numbers. But of those 25% are there going to be that many people that feel comfortable going to gamble right now? I think the answer to that has to be no. I mean, I've seen, you know, areas that have, you know, they've re opened and there are hundreds of people at the bar. So obviously there still will be people that are willing to take those risks. But I wonder what that long term looks like, because, you know, we all are we've all been inside for so long at this point. A bar opens. If we're not too concerned about the coronavirus, a lot of a, a lot of people aren't. They may go to that bar. But when you go to that bar, you want to go back to the way things used to be. Right. Mm -hmm. But they're not. There are less people there. You have to be distanced. You have to wear a mask in some instances. The, the people that you're going to see are wearing masks. So I think that we're going to see people realize that and see it being a little bit depressing. Um, I think that, you know, you'll go to your bar that you've been missing for two months and everybody will be scattered out and everybody's wearing masks. It's kind of a bleak image. So I'm wondering what that means long term to those types of situations. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the good news with Casino gambling specifically is it's usually a pretty dark image regardless uh, yeah. that, you know, you're kind of gambling alone at the slot machine or, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, but those slot machines are where the majority of money is made. How do you sell to a person that those are going to be safe, right? Like you, you would need more employees to be able to clean all this equipment, but you're making substantially less money. So how do you, how do you balance that? I, 
I don't see a way that you can do that that would be good for that industry. So that's part one, which is pretty depressing. But part two is that is majorly bad for every other industry around Vegas because casinos will probably make it. But what about the other experiences that are open, um, you know, around there, the, the restaurants that people are coming to see that aren't necessarily owned by casinos and, and the other attractions that that is pretty bleak, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and not to place responsibility on, especially like small businesses, right? But because um, I see you know, they are trying to take measures um, to protect both their employers and customers, etc. But they're not receiving like these um, reopening plans, they're not receiving enough assistance, both from the state and federal government about what, you know, proper protocol uh, is, you know, like you, I'm looking at other countries that are asking patrons, they're taking their temperature, they're, you know, they're enforcing contact tracing, etc. And, you know, I see that, you know, there's a lot of cities that are making these decisions unilaterally. They are not consulting with the with the general public. They're not consulting with local businesses, and they don't have the the budget right to implement these type of measures. So um, it's a tough time both for businesses and again to inspire um, consumers to go out and consume. Right. Well, and we're only. I mean, we're like once Las Vegas opens up, we're only one incident incident away from like any sort of trust being ruined, um, you know? And so, you know, going to like what happened in South Korea, the, the one gentleman who went to the nightclub, um, who was infected and, you know, ended up infecting, you know, hundreds of people from just one night out at the bars. And if, you know, and that could happen anywhere in the country and it would be, it would be bad. Like, but, but I think if that happens here in Las Vegas, it could be, like that could ruin the trust of of the city um, mm-hmm. or of our community, which I think is different than say if it were to happen in, you know, if that were to happen at bars in Nashville, it'd be one thing. But if that happens on the Las Vegas Strip, I think that will be a much right. bigger thing. People be like, oh my God, you know, this happened. The casinos aren't taking care of, you know, the situation. They're not, they're not putting the right measures in place. Right. And it's almost in in the very sad part of that is it's almost inevitable that something like that's going to happen. Right. We aren't we haven't done testing at the level we need to do. Uh, I fear that we're rushing things back uh, too quickly. Now, there are a lot of, you know, in in a way you kind of have to because the city of Las Vegas couldn't survive another two months. Uh, with the current system that's happening, right. uh, the, you just couldn't do it. There's no you. You would need massive changes in the way that the the federal government or the state government help these people uh, that are working, that are living in the city. Now, if you don't open back up, you're not going to have people there working. But there has to be a better plan, and there doesn't seem to be. Yes, we can clean all we want, right? That's you know that is important. But again, like you said, Jacob, if one person at a Cirque du Soleil show goes in with COVID-19, there are thousands of people there that are now potentially able to get sick from the same, you know, from easily. And then the worst part of that is they're now going to travel back home across the country. So it's, it's, it could be like a very terrible um, area then, like you said, would be, be very, very bad press. And if, let's say if we have to do something that we've already done, shut down again, that could be the end of, uh, of an industry and, and a lot of a city in general. Right. So, um, which had some comedic yeah. humor to make right. things a little bit better. But. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Um, so it, uh, I have a question that I didn't, I didn't prep you with this one, Cole, but I know oh, cool. from knowing you that this is something that, that we talk about. So, um, you know, here sure. we are in 2020, we're just, you know, s- s- not even six months away from the, the next election, um, which yeah. is a presidential election. How, you know, and I don't know if you've run any projections on this, but, but how do you see, or how do you feel the election going, um, you know, the way things are now, and if there's you yeah. know, anything that you see that could either that could throw the election, um, particularly we'll t- we'll just speak about the presidential election one way or another. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, when building the model, it's pretty easy to project where where the common person is at this moment. Um, it seems that not I wouldn't say be, at this point anything's possible, especially like we know from 2016, these numbers were substantially higher. But if let's say all things considering, if we were able to have uh, elections tomorrow and you didn't have to be concerned about COVID-19 and you that wasn't a thing, it seems as if the Democratic candidate would win. Um, the problem is what we're seeing is a lot of changes and a lot of swing states on how we should handle the economy and how we should handle uh, COVID-19 as a whole. Mm. So I just saw some polling from Michigan uh, where a lot of people are more people. So, and it's the only projection that I've seen this where Joe Biden is not the favorite in, in a certain situation. And that is people who can rebuild the economy. So swing voters in Michigan actually think that Trump will be a better person to be in charge in rebuilding an economy. Those numbers are very, very scary for a number of reasons. If you're a Democrat, Um, because one right now we are in a situation where the only things that really matter to people, regardless of everything else that's happened is the economy and is of the public health crisis. And if you're able to win at one of those categories, which right now among swing voters in, in very important States, Trump has a little bit of an edge because people still believe him on the economy and that he is right for it. And I think that that is the hardest thing I'm finding in making projections. Uh, But I do have a couple um, without Wisconsin. It doesn't seem as if there's any way whatsoever, mathematically speaking. And those numbers are particularly scary in Wisconsin right now uh, for Democrats. But that being said, Florida is a must win for Republicans and it's not as good there. So I'm interested to see over the few months who is going to be able to make themselves the person that is best for the economy and present that to the the average swing voter, which believe it or not, there's a lot more than even I thought that there would be at this time. So that's a, that's a plus in, in, yeah. in the category. That's well, right. and going back, oh, sorry. Oh, uh, for it, yeah. I was just going to go back to what you were saying um, at the beginning, talking about the primary, um, owners of wealth in this country and people that invest in the stock market like it they are affluent um older white people that is his his principal voting block but it will be interesting to see because they are a vulnerable group right now during COVID 19 and there are numbers starting to show that yes they are confident in the way he's managing the economy but not super satisfied with the way that he's managing the pandemic so i think it would behoove the democrat the democrats to make you know a better case about how they would invest in social programs that you know could have prevented this and moving forward will be able to protect you in the future 
Yeah, for sure. And, and actually, you know, we, we think of this as, um, you know, he gets the older voters. Like that's almost certainly what Trump that is. We almost certainly assume that that's the case. But believe it or not, over the past month, those numbers have dramatically changed. 65 plus voters are now are, are leaning towards Biden in some polls, which wow. from 2016 would be a 15 percent change. And I think that has a lot to do with what you're talking about. These older voters, especially 65 plus, are having friends or loved ones that are being affected by this and perhaps even dying. And I think that that is changing a lot of opinions. Now, that was one poll, so it doesn't necessarily mean anything. And historically speaking, we know that older voters tend to lean Democratic, especially in the past uh, few elections, I mean, Republican in the past few elections. And so that's going to be an interesting point. Like, are the 65 plus voters, are they going to feel comfortable going to vote? One, which I mean, I I don't like right now, I wouldn't feel comfortable going to vote uh, without taking very serious care of myself. And I can't imagine being at at major risk of death if I were to go vote. And so it, it really depends on how we handle that sort of situation. And the thing is, like, I don't know that even if we do vote by mail, that that really is going to change much. Um, Participation isn't normally that great in vote by mail. Even people that get vote by mail ballots don't always send them back, which you would think would be that, you know, you're you're 67 years old and you get your ballot. You're going to mail it back because that's why you apply for it. But in a lot of cases, people don't actually do that. So I don't know that that is even the correct answer to not get too political uh, to get down that rabbit hole at least. But the the way to project an election right now is it's pretty impossible uh, because I've seen and I've run many different models that show results that you, you, you wouldn't even believe. It's just outrageous how much how far they range. Right. Well, and then even looking, um, you know, and it's it's obviously a little bit different because it's a state by state. But I, I was reading um, and looking some of the polls about some of the Senate elections, because because really, I mean, if I, I personally, this is my personal soapbox, I believe that the Democrats should be spending much more time on winning the Senate back than necessarily oh, focusing sure. on on the presidential election, because the Senate is really like, if we keep the house and get the Senate, then that can stop a lot of what Trump is doing if he were to be reelected. Um, but you know, it's, it's very interesting to see particularly, um, Arizona and North Carolina. Um, and, and in Arizona, I was, I was reading about the most, some of the most recent polls in Arizona and that, I mean, not only does the Arizona Senate race is leaning democratic, for the first time possibly ever they're also thinking that the Arizona may actually go democratic in the presidential election um which would yeah. be absolutely insane um and part of that is is because of the way um you know the 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 pandemic has been handled um and kind of i think what Arizonans must be seeing um you know and it's so interesting to think i mean i would have never never thought that uh Arizona would go would even be a potential uh, toss up for the presidential election. Now, I think they're running, you know, the the dream candidate for Senate. I yeah. mean, th- like there's literally no better candidate for the United States Senate than the one running, you know, the Democratic candidate in Arizona. In Arizona. Yeah. I mean, you've got a freaking astronaut war hero right. husband of the representative who was shot like there's literally yeah. like that checks all the boxes 
um, if you're trying to win. But then even in North Carolina, I mean, that's that's been a really interest. That's been interesting change to see. Um, but when there's course, some polling in North Carolina where Cal Cunningham is up by like 12 points and things like that, like they, right. uh, it's it's like a, it's actually pretty outrageous um, how well. And that's what's the I think the hardest part that I've had in trying to project what happens presidentially is because if when making projections in the Senate, it seems as if it's going to be a pretty heavy Democratic type of situation. Right. Um, the favorability of the Republican candidates are very, very low and even historically so in some instances of incumbents. And, you know, we, we don't really know how that will play out because we haven't seen numbers like that. Um, and especially with Trump himself polling so heavily or polling so well in, in considering all things. I mean, obviously, he's, his favorability is low, but many believe, and I'm sure we do uh, as a whole, that those numbers should be substantially worse. And for a lot of the Republican senators, they are. So I'm interested to see if it intends to be the case um, when there is a president on the ballot that tends to bring, uh, tends to go down the ballot. So if you're voting for Trump, you tend to vote Republican all the way down. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see because of the favorability of a lot of the candidates that are running Republican right now, what that actually means. I think we're going to see a lot more split tickets than, than we uh, would imagine. Right. Yeah. It's going to be, it's very, very, very interesting. Stressful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting, but yeah, panic is more, more of my, my feel. I mean, it, so. election, election night will, <laughs> will not be, uh, I think a, a comfortable night for, for any of us. Um, if we even have one, right? Yeah. yeah, we have one, which is a whole new, whole new situation. So, yeah, um, Cole, I know we've been talking a lot about you know some things that are you know not necessarily comfortable to think about. Um, sure. Is there anything that you would recommend you know for our listeners just to to either you know be aware of or you know try to you know to stay hopeful about um, you know when it comes to these kind of dark projections. Yeah, I, you know, there, there's not a, uh, uh, you know, I'm not the best person for, especially when talking about the economy or politics to give a positive spin, because I, I tend to um, not necessarily expect the worst, but I, I see that the, the possibility of bad things happening. Um, but I mean, the, the best thing we can do is just hunker down, uh, be it, be ready for the unexpected. Um, there are, there's a lot to be hopeful about. There are things that can, that we can do still that will be able to fix, um, what is happening. But I think that the way to do that under the current administration, the current governors that we have is we, we really need to vote for people that have our best interests, whether you think that is a Democrat or a Republican and, and in a lot of states, uh, it could be either way, you know, and that that is a that is an important thing to stay positive of. Uh, but we need to do our research to figure out who is going to do the right things in order to stimulate the economy um, and get us back to get us back to work in healthy ways. So right. do let's do some research. Let's stay positive, and we just got to keep fighting. I mean, America has seen us. We've seen the United States some pretty terrible things, and we've we've made it through them. And I think that we can do it because we do have a lot of really smart people that are willing to do things that uh, when others won't help them, they'll do them themselves. And I think that that is something that we all have to do. Right, and I think it's a perfect time for you know as many of us have. You know, and I won't, I, don't, I definitely won't say free time, but as many of us are maybe home more than we are used to, it's also a great time sure. to reach out to our representatives, call, 
email absolutely um you know send letters to because they are i mean they i found that that my representative so i have i have contacted both senators in nevada and then my um my congressional representative and they have been mm-hmm. much more um uh, the responses have been much more prompt uh and i think that's been really interesting um oh nice and yeah. then uh you know allison and i we we recently had um one of the state assembly representatives from nevada uh um, district 15 on the east side of town on and and you know i oh, think wow. he was he talked a lot about too um how responsive he is and we know he's really responsive but i found that other assembly and, and state senate um, representatives have been um, even more responsive to the people and i think that's that's been really really positive um and i think it's a great opportunity for us to keep that up and and keep keep on our representatives um at this time Definitely so, and 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 I think that we we could potentially see a lot more uh, participation because of you know we we do see that historically when things get tough, people start participating, and when people start participating, things tend to get better. Right. Um, and I think that that is something you make a great point. If if we can get our representatives to talk about things that are important to us and we get to, we can reach out to them ourselves, things can get a lot better. We need to be more informed as a, as a whole on, you know, all the things going on, not just economically or from a health issue, even though those are the most, two most important um, clearly right now. But I think that that, that, that is a good sign um, that they are getting back to people quickly. So, uh, you know, people are actually able to talk to the people that are making decisions for their lives. Right. And that's a point that we always discuss on the on the pod, right, mm-hmm. is yeah, voting is important. It's one of the most important things that we can do. But also once um, elected officials are in office, keeping them accountable, right? Like Absolutely. Your, job, your job does not end just by voting. You have to keep people accountable and follow up with them. And if they're not seeing through one of, um, you know, the policies that they had proposed or whatever their position was, you know, they are accountable to the public. So make sure that you are on them and, um, you know, ensuring that they follow through. Right. I mean, they are, you know, your life is being impacted by the decisions that have been made by the people that you voted for or didn't vote for right now. Right. All of this is, it was not, I'm not going to say it's hundred percent preventable because that would not be right, but it, could have been prevented. A lot of lives could have been saved if decisions would have been made that were different than the ones that we did make. And if we hold people accountable for those decisions long-term, that is going to be the difference between a pandemic and a very, very bad situation or an economic crisis or just a, a, a recession. You know, those are major differences. And the decisions that we've made in the past five years, 10 years, 15 years are directly happening all right now. So if there's ever a time to see that your vote counts, this is the best time to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is your opportunity. The, it, this could have been a minor explosion at, at a power plant versus Chernobyl, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I'm watching it right now. So just, oh. <laughs> oh, okay. You're yeah, watching there we Chernobyl. go. That makes okay. sense. Yeah. But uh, before we hopped on this call, I um, I was telling you both, I was reading an article written in Slate by Professor Derek Hamilton. Uh, He's the executive director of the Kerwan, I think that's how you pronounce it, Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University. And 
what the paper talks about, he's proposing um, something similar to the New Deal, um, where he calls for a federal job guarantee that would build a better infrastructure and impact the working class people that we just talked about being um, continuously disenfranchised, right, and have been left behind in uneven growth during the last decades. Um, investing in professional training, vocational training, grants to local and state governments, investing in energy infrastructure. And so I wanted to see if either of you had an opinion on that or like moving forward, what, um, what can the federal government do to help us recover? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this one. Um, I've got kind of two answers to the question. Um, this system is something that we should have done before this pandemic, mm -hmm. right? We should have had jobs for people that wanted jobs and we should have had good paying jobs for them and done the right things, right? At this point, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's too late because we definitely need to make that decision. Uh, but my concern is if we're starting to put people back to work, especially in jobs guarantee programs, are we going to be able to do that and from a safe standpoint? Are they going to, is there going to be another outbreak because we're putting people together to build infrastructure, uh, things like that. And if we can do that, which I think is really it's what we need to do moving forward because there are uh, there's a lot of things that we need to do from an infrastructure standpoint even to get people and we need to fix our roads and there will be people that are willing to work those jobs for fair wages and that is a very good way to stimulate the economy. It'd be a great way to do it once we are out of being um, out of you know a, a health crisis. Uh, which we we, uh, we obviously don't know when the end of that's going to be, but it, it's a very good point. And I, and I, I think that's a, a very smart thing we can do. Um, as far as like the federal government helping people, I think that we, you know, personally, I think the best thing that we could possibly do is not rush people back to work, but have loans that we're giving to businesses, kind of bridge loans, uh, to where everyone that keeps their employees, like 90%, let's do that, you know, where the majority of people are staying employed, those loans will be forgiven, which we have few of, but people aren't doing them because the implementation wasn't necessarily put in correctly. We need to, if we could find a way to do that, we could actually keep the economy running and there would be something to go back to. My concern is if we rush people back without something of that nature in place, as soon as there's another outbreak, we're just going to be right back in the same situation. Uh, and that is my biggest concern with any type of job program right now is, you know, what's going to happen when we get everybody back together? Yeah, I think that's the that's that's that is the really scary part. And for me, I mean, I I, I definitely agree um, with your thoughts on that, Cole. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of of the worker mobilization, um, particularly if we look at you know the Civilian Conservation Corps from you know the Great Depression. Like, I think that that would be an Absolutely. awesome thing um, because. I mean, particularly as somebody who likes to go to national parks and go to public lands, some of those things um, haven't been touched since they were some of those things that the Civilian Conservation Corps made haven't been touched since they were made um, or there's been right. very minimal maintenance on them. And that's uh, almost 100 years ago. Um, but, uh, my other, my big concern too, is, is if we rush to get people back to work without addressing some of those issues, um, you know, and, and, and particularly when we think about, you know, paying rent going, kind of going back full circle as so, sure. we've, you know, a lot of states, um, have delayed, 
the pain of rent or the pain of mortgages. But the issue is, is that at some point that's all going to come due. And if people aren't working or if there isn't another stimulus that directly impacts the people, um, they're going to go from, you know, so say if, if my rent was $1,200 a month and I couldn't, I didn't pay it for three months, but in three right. months I'm not back to work or I haven't received any more money. I've then got $3,600 that I have to pay or I'm getting kicked out of my home. Um, and that's also something too, that I think needs to be addressed. Uh, on top of the credit cards that you had to max out to pay for your food and on top of the student loans that you had to get the job that you no longer are able to go to. Right. Because again, I mean, at, like we were talking about at the beginning, the, you know, the, the stock market was doing great before this, but there were a lot of people that weren't in particularly good situations. And this is exacerbating that, right? right. Um, and I agree with you 100% on the concern of, yes, there, you may be delayed in paying your rent for three months, but when you have to pay 2000 a month to pay that off, would you be able to do that even if you've got your job back? Right. And if you do get your job back, are you going to be being paid the same amount for the same type of work? I, it's We're in a very interesting time of how we are going to implement things. And really the only way to do this and do this correctly would be more federal involvement, truly. I mean, that's the, you know, we have to think of ways that are, um, that are going to be best for the people because if situations, yes, yeah, stock market's doing well, but if it continues to be bad, it won't be doing well anymore. And the rich people will realize that, the ones that are investing and, and they will see that and that will come full circle. So we have to see, and, and I don't have a lot of confidence in, in the current administration to make the right decision, although uh, some states have been doing a really good job and that is something that we should uh, applaud for sure. Yeah. So, um, so we're going to, we'll, we'll end the last question will not be as heavy, Cole. Uh, so oh, cool. as, as a, as a former, I'm like the boogeyman, Las Vegas, <laughs> what is, what is the thing you miss most, uh, since the last, you know, few months since you've, you, you are now a resident of the great state of Texas? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, the thing I miss the most, I, it's definitely the people, um, I miss Las Vegas as a whole when moving there, you know, you kind of get these, you get this rep of, um, a lot of uh, Vegas in general uh, being cold, money hungry people. And I found that to not be the case whatsoever. So I would definitely say the people that I met uh, while living in Las Vegas is what I miss the most. But um, I also miss gambling on sports. I can't lie about that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it'll be. Are you, we don't have sport, so it's fine. Yeah, it's good. Are you one of the ones watching uh, Korean baseball right now? Has that? Has I, that I, so I did watch. I did watch an ep, uh, a game, and I did find it fascinating that the the way they play baseball uh, is very different than the way American baseball is played. Uh, so the way my brain works is it just thinking of from a strategy standpoint. Uh, I've enjoyed it quite quite a lot because it's a very different type of systematic thinking of baseball. So um, actually I think, uh, I think the MLB could learn a lot from, uh, from watching uh, Korean baseball. So that, I guess that's a silver lining. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, it's exposed a lot of sports fans to uh, yeah. something they probably would have never, never uh, wanted to watch or, or even been exposed to. So I think that's also really cool. In all honesty, I didn't know there was like a, a, a league um, I knew that, you know, it, it was obviously very popular all over the world, but I didn't know there was like a Korean baseball league. So I've learned quite a bit and I'm a big sports fan. So that's, uh, 
right? It's a, you know, we're all learning a little bit, I guess. And uh-huh. seeing that the teams are like corporate owned, which is so different. Uh, the model's different. Yeah, than, it's bizarre. Than here. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, like the NFL in the early days where it was like, you know, the Green Bay Packers were owned by a, a meat packing company, you know, the Acme meat yeah. packing, you know, so it's, it's like it's such a different way of, of thinking about sports, like company teams. Um, yeah. And it's very systematic because of that, right? We don't have some guy that's, you know, 81 years old that only knows how to think one way and, and hiring people that only think that one way and playing baseball the one way that they think that they thought was right, you know, and that's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I know nothing about sports, but uh, thank you. Thank you uh, so much, Cole, for coming on and talking with us about the economy. I think um, if anything, we're, we're all in agreement that the, the country, the economy had been failing a lot of people for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic is just exposing that, right? We would not be losing our shit if, um, we, if people were able, if they had decent wages, right, et cetera. Right. So thank you for coming on and talking about this. Um, if people want to follow you, how can they reach you? Yeah, so I actually just launched my own podcast myself. Uh, it's called The Front Office with Cole Miller. It's actually about sports, uh, but kind of the business, economics, political politics side of sports. Um, and even we talk a little bit about sports history, things that have been overlooked, uh, but are a particular interest. Um, and then you can also find me on Instagram. I am at the Dapper Distiller because um, I do oh, distill as well. So. <laughs> I th- I oh, think thank you. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll like his, his Instagram account a lot, Allison. So yeah, I'll start to follow immediately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, awesome. the front office is great. I have, I have, uh, enjoyed, enjoyed it so far. Um, and oh, thank a you. Lot. And yeah. I am a sports fan, but I am definitely not, not at the level of, of, of you or many people. I'm kind of a casual fan and I've learned quite a bit. Um, and my brother is also a fan of the show. So he is, he is. Oh, good. Good. Well. Yeah. And he is a much more, he's a, much bigger sports fan than I. So. And that was kind of the aim of the of the podcast. It's not necessarily be um, you know directly towards the mega sports fan to be approachable uh, because there's a lot of stories in sports that a lot of people don't hear uh, that are very very good. Um, and speaking of the one we just released, uh, one about Arthur Ashe, tennis champion, uh, was a huge importance in, 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 in during the time period. So it, it's good to see those kind of stories. And even if you're not a sports fan, you you'll you'll learn something and you'll enjoy uh hearing a little bit about them i i I, that's my hope at least yeah great we'll make sure to share um in our show links show notes all of the links to all of uh, your social media your podcast and everything oh i appreciate it thank you thank you again for coming on this has been wild and free a battleborn podcast i am allison who are our who's our team, Jacob? Uh, we have, of course, Jose Sotelo, the producer and theme song composer. We've got Ashley Pacheco, who's with research assistance, B Gutierrez, creative direction. Um, and then of course we've got Raven, the dog of the Den of Descent, which we just it's been too long since we've seen Raven. Um, and then of course, uh, our our birthday boy in chief, little Sebastian, just turned one years old. A little adorable yeah. little nugget. I thought you were referring to yourself as the no. birthday. Boy. Yeah. No. Okay. The more important person was born on May twenty first, and that is oh, Sebastian. Okay. So, yeah. We miss all the people, all the babies, and all the dogs. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Cole, Cole has a, a group of dogs as well. You have two. Yeah, three. three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whew. Three. That's. Yep. A lot of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We're sending you lots of humid greetings um, from Indianapolis to Austin and dry, dry, um, dry, whatever. Dry and windy Las, Las Vegas. Yeah. That's what I <laughs> All right, then. Okay. Giddy up. Yeehaw. <laughs>